Um, but please take a moment now. <clears throat> uh, Isaiah 46. We'll be reading the entire chapter. Um, a wonderful word for this new year. Isaiah 46. Please give your full attention. This is the word of our God. <clears throat> Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop down, they bow down. Together they cannot save the burden. Themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnants of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and I will save. To whom will you liken me and make my equal, make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver from the, in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down in worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel, from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and, I, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. So for the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Um, please join me in prayer as we pray for the Lord's blessing uh, upon that word and this message. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come again before you. Uh, we are humbled in your presence. Uh, we bask in knowing the privilege of of that presence as we worship you together now as your people. We thank you, dear Lord, that you are holy and that you purge out from us all that is unholy and unclean. That your holiness is contagious. That you are gracious and able to deal with us in our sin. We thank you, dear Lord, that you're merciful and able to lift us up in our weaknesses and in our frailty, and that you're strong and good and true and gracious and tender-hearted towards us. We pray as we turn to you again now, dear Father, and to your word, and as we listen to every word that comes forth from your mouth, that you would place that word in our hearts, that there we may begin to love you in new ways, and place it in our minds, that we may understand your ways better, that all our lives... We may learn how to glorify you and enjoy you forevermore. And so we come to you again, Lord, and we ask, speak, for your servants are listening. We pray all this in 
mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, again, as I said, it's my absolute delight to be with you uh, again this morning, to be with the people of God. I would often tease my family when they were sick um, and not wanting to come to church because they were sick, that uh, John Calvin would insist, and he was coughing up blood, that he be carried to the house of God to be with his people. Um, And having um, suffered an infectious disease, uh, I've changed my uh, my tune on that, and so please don't come to church if you're coughing up blood. Um, But I'm delighted to be with here, and by God's grace and mercy, uh, I'm here with you again this new year, right? Beginning a new year. This is the first Lord's Day of the new year. And I'm sure that this past week you have heard others, uh, um, possibly yourselves, you have wished others, uh, them tell you, Happy New Year, right? Happy New Year. Uh, and you probably have wished others that, and it's very customary for us to do so. And when we do this, what are we doing? We are wishing for them that they would have a, a good year to come, a happy year. Uh, of course, what's more important is that we pray for this new year, that it is a blessed year, that the Lord's blessing would be upon us in this year. Uh, And I've often found it interesting, maybe you have found the same thing uh, in social media or other internet um, forums that we are told to send good thoughts to others. Have you seen this? Send good thoughts or good vibes. Um, What does that mean? Uh, It's a nonsensical Thing, right? What is the mechanism for sending good thoughts? Um, it is yet again the inescapability of a God-created man in a God-created world needing to express himself. Right? He is incurably religious, an incurably religious man because we were created to be so. And suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness and suppressing prayer, uh, he expresses himself with a foolish alternative That makes no sense, right? Sending good vibes. Uh, But in this case, we are saying to others when we engage in this, we really really hope you have a good good new year, a good year to come. And we can think of times when we've wished a happy new year to others, and it actually ended up being a really good year. It was a a happy year, right? Perhaps a, a person's got married or got a new job or had a child. They graduated school or they got their braces off or whatever it may be. There are things we could point back to and say, that was a good year. If that was the last year for you, 2019, I hope that 2020 uh, as well is a happy, blessed year for you. Um, I know for the Garbarinos, 2019 was not a particularly happy year uh, for a number of reasons, though we still count our blessings to be sure. Uh, Maybe for you as well, it wasn't. A particularly happy year, things that you could point to. Maybe you fell on hard times financially. Uh, Maybe you had medical issues or illnesses. Maybe you had relational difficulties. Maybe there was a death in your family. If that's you, when you're wished a happy new year, you say, yes, please. May it be a better year than 2019. Um, And for the non-believer, it's nothing more than a wish. It's like sending good vibes or good thoughts to someone. Uh, But we want to learn today as we look uh, at this text and with with this background in mind, thinking about the new year, that at times we face the new year with uncertainty. Maybe we are hopeful. We are also mixed, uh, that hope is mixed with doubt and uncertainty. We have uh, quite a lot of uncertainty in our lives, being finite creatures, 
But whatever your situation is, I hope that together as we begin this new year, we can look at what, God's, uh, what God says uh, that can provide for us some hope and some encouragement in this new year. And you probably know that our text for this morning, Isaiah 46, came to a people who were having a very bad year. When I was recovering from my surgery, one of you sent me a message uh, that quoted Isaiah 46. And it was a quote that stuck with me, and I'd been meditating on it ever since. And I've been excited to, uh, to preach a message from this uh, passage for that reason. And the setting, of course, you know, of the text is God's people is they're in captivity in Babylon. And they weren't merely having a bad year, but they were having bad decades, decades of bad years. Uh, it had been a long, long time since they had had a happy new year at all. And what happens in the course of the lives of the people of God in this situation? The Lord comes to them at the end of that captivity, and he preaches to them good news. And he gives them reason for encouragement and reason for hope. And the message that he preached to them is also for us, the people of God, in 2020, dear Christian. And this message for us as well, it is for us to have encouragement and hope in this new year, even this morning, uh, as we are here together corporately as his people and we go back into the world. God promises, his promise and his practice is to carry you, dear people of God, even through it all, even unto glory, with him forever. Right? What did the a passage in Ephesians say? You are being built into the holy house of the Lord with Christ as the chief cornerstone. And he alone can do it. Certainly idols cannot. And certainly we see the contrast in this passage between impotent idols and the omnipotent uh, Lord of the universe. Uh, and therefore we are to throw off those impotent idols and rest ourselves fully on Christ who can and does truly carry you to the end and forever. We are to remember, trust, to be encouraged, and be hopeful. And as we look at this, well, how is it that we are to throw off worthless things, idols in our lives, and to rest ourselves fully on Jesus, to rest ourselves in him uh, completely? How can we have hope and encouragement in Christ? Well, we can do so because of God's everlasting protection, because of his eternal plan, and because of his encouraging promise to us. Uh, you have an outline in your liturgy there <clears throat> with those points in it. God's everlasting protection, his eternal plan, and his encouraging promise that is for the people of God. And we can have hope, and we can have encouragement in Christ. First, because of his everlasting protection and care. So how does God begin to give his people care and protection here as we look at Isaiah 46? Uh, he gives them his word, right? And it is the same word he has always provided for his people. It is that same word. And that word is going to a people who needed to hear it very badly. They were a people who had spent a long time in Babylonian captivity. They needed to hear the gospel, the good news we don't have time to explore and to unpack all the details of the book of Isaiah <clears throat> this morning. Uh, but at its most basic level, we can look at Isaiah and we can divide it into two parts. Uh, the first part 
uh, consists of chapters 1 to 39. And in those chapters, Isaiah is prophesying about events that happened in his time. And then the second part is chapters 40 to the end, to to chapter 66. And that part deals with events that will happen long after Isaiah is gone. Isaiah prophesied about the the captivity in Babylon. And And then we go from Isaiah 39 to 40. We move forward in time. Isaiah 40 and onward speaks of a day and a time beyond most of the captivity. And the people there are anxious to be free, to be liberated, and to be returned to their land that they were promised, that they longed for. And this is the reason we sang Isaiah 40 earlier. It is a beautiful song. It is a beautiful chapter. God comes to his people, a people so long in captivity, and he says what to them? Comfort, comfort ye my people. Speak ye peace, thus says our God. Speak tenderly to her, it says. In Hebrew it says, speak to her heart. Call out to her that her warfare is over. That her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A glorious and hopeful message. It's an encouraging word to God's people. That he is coming to free them. And as we move to our text this morning, we see this quite graphically. Uh, Look at verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 46. It says, again, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden themselves they go into captivity what does this mean right we could summarize this looking being whole canon whole whole covenant uh uh believers of god's people we have the totality of his revelation to us we could summarize this as what we read as what we read in revelation 18 all right after this i saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority and the earth was made bright with his glory. You remember what he calls? He called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. This is what is being declared, right? Those two great gods of Babylon, Bel and Nebo, are in a cart being carried off by animals into captivity. We know these False gods, the names anyway. Um, when I mention them to you, you will recognize them. Bel, of course, we know that uh, name from Belshazzar, and Nebo from Nebuchadnezzar, right? Nebuchadnezzar. These are compound names of these uh, incorporating these Babylon gods, Babylonian gods. And here they are depicted in Isaiah 43 as, as 46 as dumb, mute, fallen over, being carried by tired beasts of burden. And these gods, these idols notice, when they fall over, they stay falling over. When they tip over in the cart, they don't get back up. There's nothing they can do. And at this point, you may be thinking, well, Pastor, how is this hopefully encouraging, hopefully, hopefully encouraging for the new year? Uh, why does God start with idols? Right, tell me about the true and living God. 
And the answer is simply that God starts there so that he can show the contrast between the idol's impotence, their lack of power, their utter fecklessness, and God's omnipotence, his all-powerful, the mighty Yahweh. And so he can show the absolute contrast between the two. And he tells us to think about how different he is from these false gods. Look, if you would, at verses 5 to 7, where we see this contrast. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver on the scales, they hire a goldsmith and it makes it into a god, then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries out, it does not answer them or save him from his trouble. Right? How are the false gods contrasted with the true and the living God? Notice the idols burden the beasts, right? They burden their banks, right? Their wealth, their gold and silver. And they burden the backs of those who worship them. They must be carried. They cannot save. They are costly. Wealth is given to the goldsmith. And the idol is made and he gives it back to them and they worship it. What absurdity. What absurdity. Again, see in verse 7. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save from trouble. Contrast this with the true and the living God. Remember in, in Psalm 3. We cry out and he hears He hears from his holy hill. This is the insanity of unbelief. It is the insanity of sin. Idolatry is a taker. We all know this. Whether it's addiction or idolatry by any other name. It is a burden. It takes and takes. And it gives nothing in return. It is a liar. It is a burden. It weighs down and ultimately eventually it crushes. Nowadays, not many make idols out of gold and silver. But we know that very many make gold and silver into idols. Right? Indeed, there are very many things that we can take and make idols of. And what does the Lord say about those things you make into idols? About anything, really, that you put in the place of the true and living God. What does he say? He says, they do nothing but take from you. They give no true lasting satisfaction. They give nothing in return. They offer no help. They are altogether impotent. They cannot answer. They cannot save. In fact, they burden to the point of destroying those who worship them. It never ends well. Dear Christian, are there things that you have allowed as idols in your lives as you take consideration of your lives are there things that you've allowed as idols in your lives and this is a challenging question to all of us because as God's beloved children we are to share our devotion with nothing else we are to share our devotion with no one else God alone is to be the object of our devotion singularly the object of our delight and our glory and our affection And we must be about the business of ridding ourselves of anything that competes with Christ for our affection. 
will not share our affection with anything. Another way of looking at this is through the glorious biblical doctrine of justification. Right? Scripture's teaching about how we are saved, how we are right before God. In what are we resting our status before God? Our works, our doing, our deeds? God forbid, we all say. We know that it can't be that. But how sensitive are we to making idols of our doctrine? How sensitive are we to resting in our theology rather than in the one to whom, about whom our theology teaches and points us to? Are we sensitive not to rest in and make idols of our pristine law-keeping, which isn't that pristine, by the way? We are to rest in Christ alone for our salvation, brothers and sisters. We know this. We are to rest in his perfect, completed work on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, may we be challenged daily by the reality of the warfare that rages as God's people fighting to put to death the idle factories in our hearts and the flesh that clings so closely. May we know, and I proclaim to you, even now as we've heard earlier, I proclaim it again, as we have humbled ourselves and confessed ourselves, uh, confessed our sins before him, we can be assured of our right standing before God. And the forgiveness of all of our sins. How is that the case? Why is that? Because he is faithful and just. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To forgive us of all of our sins. And at the end of the day, idols are burdens to bear. And what does the Lord do? He comes. And what does he say in contrast? He says, you know what I'm like? I'm the burden bearer. I'm the burden bearer. I'm not a burden to you. I bear your burdens. I don't take anything from you except your sin. And you don't have, why? Because you don't have anything that I need. It is I who give to you from the overflowing fountain of mercy and goodness and grace that is in me. I don't need you to carry me. It is I who carry you. That is his promise to us. Is that not glorious? Verses 3 and 4 go on in this glorious promise. Um, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age. I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and I will save. It's God's word to his people. And there it is, right? How glorious. What a contrast between the impotent idols and the omnipotent Lord of all things, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? The idols are made low, knocked down, brought to their knees, stooped and crouching. They are powerless over themselves, let alone anyone else. They must be carried. They cannot hear. They cannot respond when one cries to them. They cannot save. Oh, but Yahweh is powerful. What a powerful God we have. He's powerful to create and to save and to rescue and to bear his people. He hears his people from his holy hill. Dear Christian, he has carried you from the womb. Even to your old age, he will carry you. 
What a glorious and delightful promise. All that you go through in life. And we go through all manner of sorrows and difficulties and uncertainty. And throughout it all, what does he say? Even to your old age, he is God. He will carry you. If you have pain and terror in your life this year, fear and dread, we have to be sure. We together have been carried through it by our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And as the body of Christ, we had fear and you shared your love and you interceded for us and through it all he carried us even to our old age and if we went through this trauma annually to our last days what is his promise even to your old age he will carry you our omnipotent king will complete that work that he began in us no one can snatch us out of the father's hand Is that reason for rejoicing in this new year? Is that reason for worship, for praise, for comfort? Oh, it is. It is, brothers and sisters. Well, what if you're not certain? What if you're sitting here this morning, you're not certain, you're not comforted, you're not rejoicing? If you are not, I plead with you to taste and see that the Lord is good. He is altogether wonderful. We all have a decision to make in life. Will you serve that which is not God? Or will you serve the one and only God? And if something, if you have something that you're serving that you have to carry around, you're carrying a God that ends in destruction. But if your God carries you, the true and the living God carries you, well, that ends in salvation. That's all the difference in the world. Because his purpose in carrying you is to save you. To save you. And of course we see that salvation manifested most supremely. And ultimately when Jesus Christ appears. Because he appears as God with us. Right? He is the burden bearing God. It is interesting at the end of Isaiah 45. Several verses right before our uh, text this morning. Isaiah 45 sets up these themes. These very themes when it says in verses 22 and 23. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee will bow. And every tongue shall swear allegiance. And we see the burden bearing God. Jesus God with us, Emmanuel, come come in the flesh, taking the form of a servant, God tells us in Philippians. And it says what? He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has what? Highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Then he quotes Isaiah 45. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In this Jesus, he bears all the burdens with which we are burdened all our life through. 
even to your old age. He will carry you. He takes all the things we are burdened by to the cross and he suffers in your place. May we never forget that, brothers and sisters. May the truths and glory of the gospel never become old hap or mundane or regular to us. Psalm 21, Psalm 121, we heard earlier and we sang earlier, it said gloriously, He will keep your life. He will keep your life. The God who does not slumber or sleep. And Christ is the ultimate expression of this reality, is he not? He took all that we deserved for our sins. When it came time, he agonized in prayer in the garden. And he submitted to the Father's will that he be forsaken. And Christ asks, why? Why, Father? Why, my son? Because I am making you who knew no sin to be sin. So that those upon whom I've set my love would be my very righteousness. And the cup of the Father's wrath is filled and it is taken and is pressed into the hands of his son. And his son drinks it down to the dregs, all of it. So that the cup of the Father's love can be taken and drank by his people. And it is filled and it is overflowing and we drink and we drink and we drink. And we lift it up for more. And it overflows again. His love for his people. What glory. What love, what care, what delight. Do you know that? Have you seen his hand in your life? Oh, what protecting love, what mercy he has for his people. I know I've seen his sovereign providential power in carrying me in many things in my life, especially these past few months. And I'm sure every one of you could tell of times when he has carried you or someone you love. A Savior was needed, and the Savior comes, and he comes for you. What does it say? What does Hebrews tell us? He saved to the uttermost those who are drawn near to God through him since what? He always lives to make intercession for them. Your great high priest praying for you. Brothers and sisters, we can have hope and encouragement in Christ. First, because of his everlasting care and protection. We can have hope and encouragement in Christ. Secondly, because of his eternal plan. Very briefly, let's look at verse uh, 10 where it says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Brothers and sisters, that is good news. That is good news. It is good news because as we see in this passage, God's plan was what? For his people in salvation. His plan was to save them. For his people Israel, he promised what? to deliver them, to save them from their struggles and the worldly powers from which they needed to be saved. And Yahweh is going to execute his plan to save them from Babylon. Again, the first part of verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. God is going to call a bird of prey to come and to descend on Babylon and carry it away like a predator, like a hunter. And this happened, of course. It's a reference when the Lord called King Cyrus 
by name as the one who would authorize the temple's reconstruction and the fulfillment, at least in time, in one stage of this prophecy, several centuries later, confirmed the Lord's claim to be the only God who can control and therefore foretell, foretell the future. He carried, he made, he bore, he saved. Even to old age, he says, I am he. Verse 11 continues in stressing the certainty of, of that prophecy. And the construction in the Hebrew is emphatic. It is powerful. The statements are uh, very punctuated. It says, For certain I have spoken. Surely I will bring it to pass. I have purposed indeed. I will do it. And this really is good news. It's not merely good news because of the promise to deal with their worldly captivity and return to the land. The really good news deals with the far greater problem of their spiritual captivity, to which all this pointed and prefigured anyway. Notice how the Lord refers to them in verse 12. He says, Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. Verse 8 even calls them, you transgressors. In this passage, God promises to rescue them from their world captivity, their worldly captivity, Babylon, but also to save them from their spiritual bondage. They are hard-hearted. They are far from righteousness. And this is where we move to God's encouraging promise, the third point this morning. And remember, by the way, what did our passage from Ephesians 2 say? He brought those who were far and those who were near and made one new people from them. Right? This is... uh, we can have hope and rest in God in, in Christ because of God's everlasting promise, uh, his protection, his eternal plan, and then finally his encouraging promise. Uh, verse 13, he continues, well, verse 12 at the end, you are far from righteousness. In verse 13, I bring my righteousness near. Right? I bring my righteousness near. I come and I bring salvation to my people. I bring near my righteousness. How? How, dear Christian, does God bring his righteousness near? He does so in the person of Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. Not just uh, for the end of December, but every Lord's Day by Lord's Day. Indeed, every hour. God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus Christ. He will be with his people. It's a motif that is throughout Scripture. Verse 13 continues. My righteousness is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion. I will adorn Israel with my splendor or beauty. That's what it says more literally. I will adorn Israel with my splendor, with my beauty. And God does this because it is exactly what his people need. They have no righteousness of their own. So they need someone to bring God's righteousness to them from the outside. There's a Latin phrase, a theological phrase in Latin uh, that speaks of this. And it's extra nos, right? Extra nos, right? Outside of ourselves. I remember I mentioned this once to a ninth grade, uh, class of ninth graders. And of course, someone thought I was referring to an extra nos, um, 
No, not no's, extra no's outside of ourselves. Salvation outside of us. Like Isaiah 46, righteousness is not self-derived. It's not derived from the self. They are far from righteousness. And God meets that need and he says, I bring my righteousness near. And this is nothing less than that wonderful biblical doctrine. Again, of justification by grace alone, through faith alone. And stated here, on account of the righteousness of Jesus, that he brings near. What a wonderful plan and promise of God for we, his people, this morning. And we know, too, from scriptures that this plan and promise was fixed when? Before the foundation of the world. The Father chose us in Christ. And God, the Holy Spirit, in time, applied that redemption accomplished by Jesus, by his life, death, and resurrection, and ascension, and session to the right hand of God. He brings that to those whom the Father chose. He accomplished it for them. And listen to the glorious declaration, self-declaration of the Lord, in verses 8 and 9. Remember this. Stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And as we close, let's hear what God tells his people to do. There's application here right in this text. This passage is all about what God has promised to do. But we shouldn't miss in seeing that the things that God calls us to do as his people in this passage. There is, of course, indicative and imperative. What's true and then what to do. Right? Perhaps this year you could resolve yourselves to putting into practice the points drawn from this passage. And there are three of them. What does God tell us to do here? Well, first, he says, we see in verse 12, he says, listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me, he says. What greater advice... Could you follow than that? Listen to the Lord your God. Brothers and sisters, we are bombarded constantly with things vying for our attentions, for things battling to be listened to. And I'm convinced that the constant stimuli and the unceasing static and noise and information and distraction that assaults our minds constantly and souls like a fire hose to the face, they might be the greatest danger to making God's people Impotent in their ability to think and to reflect in their souls on the things of God. We must get quiet. We must get quiet. Be still. Listen to me, he says. We must quiet our minds and our spirits and listen to the Lord and his word. We don't have time to unpack all of the ways and practices to do this very thing this morning. But I again encourage you to dig into Scripture Dig into it and see what it says about uh, reflection, about meditation. We'll be going through our class on prayer, Lord willing, uh, this year again, where we look into prayer and biblical meditation. <clears throat> the Christian's vital breath, uh, Dabney referred to prayer as. And it is a helpful study on these things. And I encourage you all to plan uh, to attend that if you have not, uh, when we nail down the schedule for that. But we must listen to the Lord, he says in verse 12. 
And it's interesting, you know, if you look at the, uh, do a historical survey on the practice and importance of biblical meditation, throughout history, how pervasive it's been, how important in all the ages and stages of the church, um, our fathers in the faith and theologians have written about biblical meditation. And it's curious that they all discuss both its importance and its difficulty. Why is meditation so neglected if it is so important and so delightful and so beneficial to our spirits? It's because it's hard. Because it's hard. It is hard work. There's no app for it. Biblical meditation is hard. It's not easy. It takes time. It takes practice and it takes patience. And it takes listening and being quiet before the Lord. We are all probably guilty of listening in our day and age to tons and tons of sermons, but meditating on none of them. I think it was James Usher, if I'm not mistaken, said over 300 years ago, he said, one hour spent in biblical meditation is worth more than a thousand sermons. That was 300 years ago. In our age of limitless access through podcasts and other means, I fear that our reflection and our contemplation on what we take in is thinner and grows thinner and thinner. So let us heed his warning first to listen to God. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. And then next, secondly, we see in verses 8 and 9, he says, Remember who I am. Listen to me. Remember who I am. And again, what a glorious thing to reflect upon. The person of God and the works of God and the glory of God to reflect upon, to recall, to remember who God is in his mighty deeds amongst the people of God. Recall his protection. Recall his sustaining grace for his people. The same mighty hand that wipes out his enemies is the one that carries you. Remember who he has been for his people and who he has promised to be for them. And after we'd first listened to him, and then second, remembered who he is, thirdly, we are to stand firm. It says, stand firm. The old authorized version says, show yourselves men. Take courage, take heart, stand firm. Be assured from this remembrance of who God is. Listen, remember, stand firm. It is like a garland of three rings. We are called to undertake for this new year. I encourage you. Much more, of course, could be said. We're out of time, and I'm almost out of air. Uh, but remember as we close, brothers and sisters, as we descend back from Mount Zion and return to our frenzied world, let us acknowledge the similarities of God's people throughout time, even in our day, even the sameness of ourselves with the hearers of Isaiah. They were tempted to forget God and rely on idols and we are too let us remember that Christ alone fully and truly satisfied he is the only true satiation for your souls nothing else can or ever will do so let us remember what is true and what to do right? what is true Christ is all powerful he paid our penalty and freed us from our sins and what to do Remember, trust, hope, 
and be encouraged by what Christ has accomplished. Let us praise. Let us praise our God, brothers and sisters, for he is powerful. He is sovereign. He is the creator. He is the caregiver. He is the savior. Praise him for his care and his love. How are we to respond to these glorious truths? Again, we remember, we trust, we believe, we flee to Christ, we cling to Christ, we throw off our idols, and we look to him in faith for the freedom that he provides. Rest in Jesus. Again, the only salvation for your souls. Let us confess. Even when we are weak in our weaknesses, we don't look to and rest in Christ. Let us confess that lack of trust and belief that at times we do look to other things, to idols, for fulfillment, for satisfaction rather than Jesus. Let us address those before God. Let us be real before Him and beg Him for His strength to change us and to grow us through the gospel. The grace we need, brothers and sisters, is that trust and belief. Believing what he tells us is true in his word. Do you believe it? Do you believe that you're dead to sin and alive to walk in newness of life? Believe it. It is true. Let us rest truly in Christ. He came. He carried the load of sin to the cross perfectly on our behalf. And he carries us throughout our lives by his spirit and by prayer. He ever lives to intercede for us. He's done all that was needed to be done, that we would be perfectly righteous before the Father. And if you've not already done so, when will you take hold of the Savior? When will you do so? Will this be the year that you surrender and cling to Him by faith and come empty-handed with nothing of yourself? Flee to Him. Flee to him. Throw yourself upon his love and his mercy and his tender loving care. He will not cast you off. Believe him and his means of grace for you. His word and the Holy Spirit working through that word. It changes us. It transforms us. It grows us. And unless we commit to it, we risk stagnation and spiritual atrophy and indifference, even corrupting thinking and acting. Remember those words I told you? My former pastor used to always say, this book will keep you from sinning, and sinning will keep you from this book. How true it is. You want to defeat sin in your life? The Holy Spirit working through this book is a major part of that battle plan. You want to grow in holiness and in Christ-likeness? Get into the Word and get the Word into you. Meditate upon it. Plead with Him to show you what He wants to reveal to you therein. And I challenge you this year, dear Christians, as you begin your Bible reading plans, and I encourage you all to be beginning those, to spend time meditating upon what you're reading. May we act and think and live in a way that expects and trusts that our God truly will change the world and do extraordinary things, even in this city, even in this church. Will you trust that God can and will do so? Will you trust and pray and live in action and in anticipation that God will grow his church? 
for His glory. Will we be a part of that? This transition to the next, to the new year, even a new decade, will you consider these things in your hearts and minds? Will you live in a whole-souled commitment to Jesus Christ, relying through it all on the Holy Spirit and His presence and power in your lives? This is my plea to you at this time. May the next year, the next decade, be an extraordinary one where the ordinary lives of we, God's people, in its mundane normalcy, be used for His extraordinary glory and power to the giving of life to many and the changing of many lives. Again, all to His glory. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would again, again be with us. Give us hearts that believe. In fact, Lord, we pray, increase our faith. We believe. Help our unbelief. Help us to rejoice and delight in the lives that you have given us. And help us to hope and even thrive as your people, as those united to Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.